Welcome to the MTB Tribe Podcast, your trail map for the world of mountain biking. And now, I'll introducing your host, Gareth Beckett. Howdy, mountain bikers. Thanks for being here, and welcome to episode 164 of the MTB Tribe Podcast. I'm here as always to help you find out more about mountain biking, how to get out in the trails, keep you stoked, and hopefully learn a little more about mountain biking and the people involved. So thanks so much for being here this week, and thanks for tuning into the podcast. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast and want to show your support, the best way to do that is by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. Your ratings and reviews help the podcast get seen easier and hopefully it will help get people off the sofas and onto the saddles. So I just want to say a big thank you to everybody that has been doing that over the last number of weeks and months. So thanks so much for helping the show. Now, if you follow the race scene and you follow the Enduro World Series, you will know our guest this week very well. And to many of us mountain bikers, it may seem like the dream job. You know, you're traveling the globe, you're following the Enduro race scene, you're hanging with the pros, you're getting paid for it. But deep down, we all know that being away from our family and friends and living out of a bag for a large chunk of the year is not what it's all cut out to be. And this is what this week's guest has been doing for several years, bringing us coverage of the EWS. But with all that said, I don't think he would change his job. I think he's super passionate about his work, about his crew, about the sport. I have a feeling he wouldn't change it for the world. Of course, we're chatting with Rick McLaughlin, the host of the EWS Highlights show and so, so much more on the EWS website. We chat to him about how you get involved in the mountain bike scene, how he was chucked in at the deep end, really, and thrown behind a microphone, what his recording schedule is like, how the pros felt about getting back to racing, and how COVID affected his recording schedule for this season, plus much, much more. Lots of good info about the EWS, what goes on behind the scenes and new stuff that will be happening in the 2021 season it was an absolute pleasure to get rick on the podcast i really did enjoy our chat so without further ado let's welcome rick to the mtb tribe podcast hi rick welcome to the mtb tribe podcast it's an honor to have you on the show bro how's things with you today oh good guy thank you actually we're um I hope I can remember everything. I've just spent two weeks off after the end of the EWS there, so it's probably the longest I've not talked about bike racing for a year, so hopefully I'll be of some interest to you. <laughs> yeah, well, here, it's been a mixed-up season, right? I'm sure it's been a bit of a head-scratcher for yourself. It has been, yeah. It's not been a normal year for anyone, um, least of all ourselves, but we were really happy with what we ended up getting out of the year, and... Uh, yeah, no, I think it, we made the best out of um, we best made the best out of a really difficult situation. So it's uh, it's nice to be home safe and have those races in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we only seen two events really, Sir Matt and Italy this year. Um, had they planned to do more? Did they plan to do more in the future, or did they kind of sort all that out at the start of the year for you guys and the obviously the pros and everybody else involved? Well, we had. Um, we had the three races there. We did uh, Zermatt, then we had the two Italian rounds, and we had um, 
two EWS e races as well, the e bike stuff. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That was it's basically obviously we were supposed to start our year in March in South America, and then it was sort of um just really sort of reorganizing and restructuring things as we went along and different obviously you'd you know you'd start work each morning and each country would have a different set of mm. legislations in place and so there was a lot of sort of just trying to keep up to date and everything and trying to you can't predict the future but trying to sort of give yourself the best options that you could give yourself and then uh we were supposed to be going to Slovenia slash austria for a round and france as well but um when it got down to it we just decided that uh finale is where we always finish our year and it was the best bet just to finish it up there by the sea with the gelato so i mean there were worse problems to have but we look forward to getting back to those venues as well hopefully next season yeah yeah definitely and who rick you're you're part of the media crew there now are you still working with red bull media doing that no, I'm no longer from um, basically January. I started full time with Enduro World Series, which up until then I've been freelance since 20, 2012, I think, really. And that was doing World Cups for Red Bull and then the last three years doing EWS as well. So if this year had happened, it would have been a nice reduction in traveling for me. But as it turned out, it was a hefty reduction in travel. So, yeah. Yeah, it's just from one extreme to the other, eh? Yeah, no, definitely. But it was, I mean, it was uh, it was great to spend some time at home. I've got two young kids, and whenever you whenever you do that sort of job regularly, um, you sort of, you can forget just how much you are away, do you know what I mean, and how much toll it sort of takes on you mentally and physically. So it was nice to just be at home and ride a lot. And I, I haven't seen... A summer at home for a good six or seven years so it was quite nice to just do a bit of riding and sort of hang out a bit it was, yeah it was definitely take the positives out of it put it that way yeah yeah cool and i suppose if you're working for the ews now were you involved in those kind of initial chats about what races that would possibly need cancelled were you involved in that whole side of things um i was yeah we were um we just actually opened an office down in Interleaven there and uh, we were all, it's a small team, but we all worked really, really well together. So we were all involved in the conversations. Yeah. But as I say, it was, it was just a case of an organizer on organizer basis. And um, obviously Chris Ball was uh, leading the charge and talking to as many people as he could and trying to give ourselves as, as clear a picture as we could. But it's, it's very, very difficult because obviously there isn't one set of, blanket travel recommendations for any one country and those also then vary from country to country so you could have an you know you could have somewhere where technically there is no restrictions in place but at the same time you're looking at that place you know six months down the line and it's impossible to predict so it was really difficult time but i think we all as a team handled it pretty well or as well as we could do yeah, for sure. And you, you have quite a small team there at the EWS, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, there's um, there's five or six of us in the office at any one time. And um, then we've also a crew of uh, cameramen, editors, um, Duncan Philpott's our in-house photographer that we all travel with and um, different members of the team as well. So it's not a big team by, by any means. And it definitely means that everyone has 
a good a good long shift every day but <laughs> it also it also makes it also makes the internal communication side of things very very easy and we all sort of know what we're doing so i mean it's great in that respect as well yeah cool man and i suppose it's nice being involved in that kind of small family type thing i suppose you're all friends and very close we are yeah we're all good friends we're all very very close and it's it's one of those one it's, it sounds very cliche but whenever you are in that small a team and you're working that close together for the amount of time that you often are it is like it is like being in a wee family and you know everyone sort of like everyone just has to get on really there's no other option for it and if someone doesn't fit in or doesn't want to do that then it's it's apparent quite quickly but I say that hasn't happened in the three years or so i've been there yeah cool man cool it's nice to be involved in something like that it makes it makes getting into the office a lot more pleasant in the morning <laughs> it does yeah no it definitely does and we all have we all have good crack and um there's there's plenty of banter when we're out there so um i think it's it's one of those we definitely have a it's definitely how you put it salty it's definitely quite salty at times um mm. but I think that's part of it. I think that sort of self-deprecating sense of humour and having this year as well with myself and Rory Cunningham's now, he started the same day as I did. So the two of us get on very well and are very uh, very efficient at winding everyone and ourselves up. So it's good fun. (laughs) Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, because it is a slightly different setup. You're involved with the GMBN guys this year and stuff. Has, Has that went over okay? Is that all good? That's been fantastic, yeah. They've been really, like, the amount of help and support that we've received from them already. And, I mean, I think you can you can see that. And uh, I think what we've put out this year is the best stuff that we've actually we've done. And that comes with their help and their support and having Neil and the guys on the ground as well. Jack Gill, who was there in Italy with them, is one of their filmers editors and uh he was a massive help and they just they just really get it and they're really excited to have uh mountain bike racing content on their site and i think yeah you, you just you see that and every time you speak to them nothing's too much trouble so um yeah no great we're actually really, really happy with how that went this year yeah cool and uh, i see those guys are pushing you down the trails doing the the reviews and stuff a lot more oh, now yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like I sort of thought, well, I thought nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna make me look more like a monkey than than Baller used to on the trails. But uh, having Neil and Rory on the same stages, it's actually in a way it's not that stressful because I don't see them for very long, and then I can just get on with riding at my own pace and enjoying myself. But um, yeah, yeah, no, certainly. I mean, Rory's obviously a recently ex-pro, but um, the speed that he can travel at and I've ridden with him for a good few years now but you do you swap to those onboards of his and you just it's absolutely incredible what he can do especially on an e-bike as well so um, yeah no it's it's good fun personally do you do you find yourself wanting to keep up with those guys or trying to keep up there's there's generally a terrifying moment on each one of them where You are keeping up, and it's just because you're riding the bike in front of you, you're not actually, and then you sort of realise that you're travelling at a speed that's double what you're pretty comfortable doing, and you sort of have to get back out of the throttle again and slow down. But um, yeah, no, it is. That's it's really good fun, and um, yeah, no, it's. I think we spent a lot of time 
we had a we had a down week before the first Italian race, and then so we were out there. We were in first of all Pietra, then Finale for about three and a half four weeks, and we just rode our e-bikes a lot and as a vehicle just for getting around on for carting laundry up and down the hill and boring stuff. They were great fun and there was definitely a lot of um a lot of sort of ad hoc challenges and do this, do that and people jumping off stuff and so yeah, no, it's it's always just good fun. It's just riding your mates. So Yeah, yeah, so, happy days. And they'll probably push you on a little bit, you know, you'll probably be a better rider for riding with those guys. I think yeah, I think slowly I mean, I know father always goes on about he doesn't believe in muscle memory but i certainly think that the sort of trauma i've experienced of following them for three or four years has rubbed off and i can now <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a level that i know is terrifying but i can sort of just plummet on and but yeah no i mean it's you know i've, I've never i've never claimed to be an ex-pro or you know i never i never raced at any sort of substantial level so I've never actually gone out and it was quite, to begin with, it was quite an odd thing seeing you're riding as mediocre as it is and was um, put out there. But at the same time, I think it's good for people to see just from sort of an average rider's point of view, just how fast those boys are going and how, how difficult the trails are as well. Um, so, yeah, no, it's good fun. I like it yeah no it's it's good to see you know and like cameras as you know you know better than anybody they just don't justify the steepness of those trails or the speed and they no, all... don't and we i mean that's it's one of the things that i mean even in terms of covering when i was with red bull and covering downhill like you can you can watch helmet cams of places like val de Sole and on a helmet cam, it looks like myself as an average mountain bike rider would be able to get down it. But whenever you're stood on the side of it, holding on to a rope, you're like it, the camera flattens it a lot. And mm. uh, we have stages like that as well, where you, you're more going off the speed of the bike. Do you know what I mean? The bike's going very, very slowly. Then you sort of go, oh, OK, it must be quite steep then. But yeah. no, it's definitely one thing that um, betrays it a bit. I've always said that it's mountain bike racing for me. It's very similar to motorsport in that if you watch it on TV, if you watch Formula One or MotoGP on TV, it looks pretty pedestrian. But whenever you're stood beside it, it's like it's hairs in the back of your neck stuff. I've always thought mountain biking is the same. You know, whenever you, whenever you actually stand, or even if you ride down, like there's a few things we we fill in differently, bits and bobs, and some of the stages you'd be going down with a media play on during practice and some of the speed that people come past you during practice just puts it in context you know yeah no i am sure it's it's just crazy um like those guys aren't the best in the world for no reason you know what i mean that like that stuff it's just it's just nuts to watch the speed those guys can do you, you know you don't justify it's not just it's something unless you've seen it you just you just don't understand it right yeah, no, definitely. I always, um, I always used to recommend if anybody's coming to watch a, a World Cup downhill or come, you know, coming to Fort William, whatever, just to go up to the top of the track during um, timed training and just walk down over the course of a couple of hours because you'd see different people trying different lines and trying different speeds out, and you get a really good sense of, you know, 
just what they can do. And same at EWS, you know, as close as you can get to a stage, it's just, there's, I think with EWS as well, it comes with a caveat that they've only had one practice run down each stage, which means that, I mean, whenever I first started doing it, there was still talk of, you know, riding at sort of 80, 90%, just to sort of keep your yourself and your bike mm. in one piece. But that's now... Um, that's gone now. It's just it's a hundred percent all the time, yeah. And the guys, the, the sort of thing that the pro riders can commit to at the speed that they can commit to it at is just like it's unbelievable. I find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Well, it's their career, I suppose. They do everything they do is evolving around that, and you know they're training yeah. and everything they do is all for speed and everything else. So yeah, amazing, man. Absolutely crazy. Um, how did the athletes take this year? How were they responding to everything that was going on? I think, um, I think what well, we've got um, at the EWS, we've got a rider advisory board, which is a five rider sort of panel that we liaise with, and we sort of talk to about different decisions, especially during race weeks about you know course taping and things like that. And it was difficult to get a beat on just what different athletes were so and it, to be honest it's no different than everyday life do you know what I mean there was I mean you, you look at the likes of take Greg Callahan for example I mean he's been racing since you know probably since he was a kid and those are those are all long summers away and it's, you get better and better at it you spend more summers in the van traveling and it's, it's a romantic enjoyable thing to do but at the same time I think a lot of people we're just committing to the extra training block and enjoying some time at home as well. Um, mm. I think I think one of the best bits of my year definitely was when we got to Zerma and we actually started talking about bike racing again. Um, there was definitely, it felt like from shakedown on, it was, let's talk about the actual bike race, let's talk about you know what's here in front of us and what we all normally do. And there was a bit of relief in that respect. Yeah, like I think when you were interviewing riders and stuff, it's almost one of those things, if you don't do it for a while, you kind of go out of the way of it. But once they got in that race setting again, in the scene again, they were just all loving it. They were all, they had missed it so much. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of them, a lot of them talked about sort of how mentally difficult it was to work out the that race speed again because normally by this time of the year well, when Zermatt was sort of end of August you're well well up to speed you know what's happening around you you know how fast you need to go how hard you need to push and a lot of them were sort of left wondering about that and just trying to sort of work out mentally if you take riders like someone like Eddie Masters who was racing you know specific World Cups as well as in all the Enduro World Series that you know, they're on the bike a lot and they're racing a lot and they're into that groove of race week and what it involves. And so I think there were some people sort of getting back up to speed in that sense. But um, yeah, no, it was it was just nice to go racing, I think. Yeah, yeah. And that's what them guys live for at the end of the day. So they're bound to miss it and they're bound to find it mentally challenging. You would think, if, yeah. you know, all of a sudden that changes and you can't do it. Mm-hmm. There's also yeah. some people who had some extra time to rehab from older injuries as well do you mean it would have taken longer so that it wasn't it definitely wasn't all doom and gloom i think everyone was happy to sort of be back though 
Mm-hmm. And you had riders like Sam Hill um, make the decision not to compete. Um, did you see, hear or see much of that from many other riders? Not, not a huge amount, no. And I think, I mean, Sam's been, Sam's been on top of the sport in general for long enough to to make his own decisions. And I think it was. I know that um, there is an issue with, you know, those Australian riders returning and then having to pay quite a large amount of money. I think to stay in the hotel for two weeks by yourself, um, and it's it is kind of a it's a measure they put in place to discourage people from traveling. Um, and certainly, yeah, he made the decision with, with two, well, you know, three young kids, hasn't he? And, um, just that on top of, you know, it, it was one of those things that like, for example, I, I didn't come home in between Switzerland and Italy just for fear of things were moving and still are, I guess that quickly at the moment with quarantines and borders being open and closed that, you get stuck very easily. And uh, I thought, well, we were missing, obviously, we were missing Richie Root and a lot of the American riders as well. But other than that, we had a really good turnout. We had, a, we had pretty much 100% of the women's, the top elite women, or pro women's field. And we'd, I think we'd 70, 75% of the pro men. So I think if you'd said that, if you'd said that to us at the start of the year, given the backdrop, we'd been really happy. Yeah, no, that was really, really good. Yeah, because you could get, you could fly into an airport and then all of a sudden realise, here, hold on a minute, I can't go home. Yeah, so that's it. That's, that was very much the the worry. And um, it's it's impossible to, to know, isn't it, really? It I is. think it's one of those things that, like, you know, different, different people would ask us, oh, what's going to happen with X, Y, and Z? And we've no, like, we've no internal like tap into like the any kind of embassy anywhere any sort of government or we're at the mercy of the whims and the changes and at the same time as well so it's very difficult to advise on but i'd certainly i'd certainly say yes sam 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 and you know he he made that decision full support of chain reaction which was i think the right thing to do for him and although it was it was sad not to have him at the races it was also interesting to see Chain Reaction gave uh, Ant Hale a run out as well. Elliot Heap seemed to sort of thrive as well. So there was definitely there was definitely enough to keep talking about. Yeah, that's sure. It gives other guys a, a platform to step up onto, um, mm-hmm. which is nice. Do you think some riders showing up, you may be able to chat about this, you may not, um, some riders showing up to race was because of sponsorship was because they were been told they kind of need to do it. Was there any of that kind of thing going on, or are the sponsors, you know, are are they very supportive and that type of stuff? No, I definitely, I it's definitely a valid question, and there wasn't there wasn't one instance that I was aware of that somebody was there um, under any sort of steam other than their own. Um, as you say, you know these these are professional people who this is what you know they live to do and they're professional but they're also professionals who love what they do and I think there's I think there's enough I mean we talk about our team being small you know the big race teams are the core of those with the riders mechanics and team managers and they're a small nucleus as well relatively and I don't think there was there was a 
any instance that I was aware of that anybody was there to sort of, you know, fill a, fill a flight. Um, it was, it was definitely, I think it was a good, it was a good atmosphere at it. It was a good sense of everyone being back together again. Yeah, happy days. That's mountain bikers in general, right? They're just, uh, <laughs> they just love what they do. Yeah, no, definitely, yeah. And I think, I think there's a good, there's a good degree of, especially an enduro of realization of how lucky they are to do what they do and to be paid to race bikes. And I think um, there's a there's a very professional sense of I'm here to race, obviously, but I'm also here to put all the the logos on my chest and jersey in front of a camera as well and you know if there if there is a big if there is a big race then we need to be at it and i think um no it definitely wasn't uh i definitely didn't experience any issues with people not wanting to be there yeah no that's cool that's really cool to hear uh you chatted a little bit earlier about the e-bike races there how did that all go about what was the reaction like there well we the e-bike thing was, it was really, really positive. I think it was a really, really, really interesting because no one really knew what to expect out of it. And uh, we had some, we had some different stuff. Um, one thing I, like myself and the role I have, I'm always at stage bottoms um, interviewing people um, as they've come across the line and trying to get reactions and stuff because that's when you get it the freshest obviously when they've just finished something and uh, what I hadn't realised in Zerma was just how tight the liaisons were going to be between the stages because that was a deliberate thing where they could change battery twice a day and over the course of three loops so guys were like rolling out the stages and then taking off full chat full boost straight up the fire road again so we struggled a bit interview-wise on that front, mm. but um, just, just it was really interesting. We put uh, the power stages in, which were timed uphills, which were really, 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 really interesting and really interesting being at the sort of the front of that style of riding and watching it develop and seeing how different pros approached it. Um, it's just it's such a shame because. You could see it. Um, you could see it in a, a pre-COVID age of being, you know, similar to a motorcycle trial. You know, with people, or even like a stage like men's DH. Do you know what I mean? People lining it and hanging in and shouting the riders on and stuff. But uh, we'll get there. I'm sure we'll get there eventually. But um, yeah, no, it went down. It went down well. We were happy with it. And there's definitely a lot of potential in how we can develop that further as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I think. Certainly, more people are buying them and riding them. So, you well, know, this I... is it. And you know, we I was lucky enough just through dumb luck that I managed to get my own e bike just before lockdown and just spent a lot of time on it. And I was actually, I was getting them um, before, I, before I sort of rang yourself today. I was getting a load of messages from Nico Turner, who's our director. Um, master editor cameraman at EWS saying that he just demoed one for a day up his own woods and was loving it as well and couldn't believe how much riding he got and all the all the cliche stuff that people say to you about e-bikes but it's that thing of now and again you have to rely on the fact that we're all our team we're all fans of bike riding we're all fans of bike racing and if that's what we're all riding and 
and I I probably would do an e-bike race as well. Do you know what I mean if I could get to one at the minute? So it's mm. it's nice to be there, and I think it'll really it will really push the bikes on as well. I think in the long run, if you think back to Punta Ala, the first EWS, and what people were racing on then, you know, trail bikes with triple chainring setups and downhill tires, and I, you know, compared to what a modern enduro bike looks like. Mm. I think it'll really help the way they're headed. Um, I know, like for example, Nico Villio was there, and the the attention to detail he had paid to working out the setup of Lapierre, and he trained himself to be a specific weight because then he could input X amount into the motor, which would wow. translate. Uh, so just that sort of level of if people are taking it that seriously at a racing level i think that really drives on what the rest of us get to ride as well so it's exciting yeah that's really interesting wow that they're taking because if anything you would think the majority of us would probably think it isn't as serious or it's the setup just doesn't have to be as good because you have a battery powered bike etc etc but yeah wow it's amazing that guys are taking it that serious actually training to a specific weight yeah no that's it's definitely the that's what a lot of um, a, a lot of talk around the out, the outside around the sort of edges of it was, you know, how what sort of body shape was going to work with this, and you know what sort of skills that we had. Uh, Melanie Melanie Pujan um, won the first race in Zerma, and uh, things like on on the power stage, Tracy Mosey won it, and she had one of the one of the lower average speeds on the way up it, but she just stayed tidy and precise the whole way up it. She doesn't just throw the bike at it and have to get off and run. And mm-hmm. so there's definitely there's a lot there's a lot of sort of um, there's a lot of really interesting things to talk about with it. And I think as e-bikes continue to grow, continue to become more accepted, then I think it'll only get better. Yeah. Yeah, and it works the same as the normal bikes, right? They don't get timed in the uphills, do they, Rick? No? There's, um, so basically we have a format of three separate loops. Um, so it's probably be two downhill stages in a loop or a power stage and a downhill stage, which power stage is the uphill. Wow. But you've got to complete the loop within a set time frame. Then you get 40 minutes back at the pits to change battery then make it any other technical changes you want to make and you head back out again to the next loop but there are times so that as i say if you finish the stage your start time for the next one's quite tight so you haven't got anywhere near as much time as you would do um on a pedal bike which in zermatt meant you know bombing it as fast as you could up these big alpine access roads in pietra where e-biking is it's massive and it's really taken off and there's a lot of specific e-bike trails and climbs the liaisons to the next stage were almost as technical as the power stage itself and a lot of really technical climbs and sort of Mm. rock gullies and so it's it's def it's 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 interesting it's definitely really really interesting because it's a total it's a total test i think it really just rinses everything out of a rider and in terms of like the EWS one of the interesting stats we see from it is that the amateurs uh, the guys at the start of the day their 
average speed on climbs is often much higher than the pros because the pros know that they can conserve energy on climbs and if they just you know if nothing goes wrong and they can get to the top with x amount of minutes to go they can get themselves sorted out whereas amateur guys just want to get there as quickly as they can to get themselves as much safety as they can so mm-hmm. i think um i definitely it's going to grow it's going to grow exponentially i think so it's, it's cool to be involved with to be honest i'm really enjoying it yeah, it's, it's great, man. It's great. How about the whole chipping of the motors thing? How's that policed? That's policed through, um, we basically have spot checks throughout the race where we can take a bike from any of the racers, put it in a stand, and then obviously wind, wind it up to, I think it's at 25 or 26 kilometers per mm-hmm. hour is the, the legal limit. Mm-hmm. If it goes over that, we know we have an issue. Um, so there's no, at the minute, we've kept it really simple. There's no, I mean, there's no limiting factor on torque. Do you mean you can have, you can have a motor that really just jumps uphill, but we're just keeping it to that speed limit at the minute. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that you've got to come back for a battery change anyway means that, you know, everyone's using the maximum amount of battery power they can. And I definitely think it's, it's a really, I octane isn't the right parlance to use at all because it's battery, isn't it? But it's definitely it's still solved <laughs> for a lot of it. Um, so, yeah, no, I think it. I think it'll grow. I think it'll really grow, and hopefully, it'll help develop the bikes a bit as well. Yeah, amazing. Because I'm sure, you know, you've seen the enduro stuff change a lot over the years, right? And and the bikes have obviously changed a lot over the years. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what the e-bike does. I think it's very, very cool that you're there and you can you can see it develop over the years. Yeah, no, it definitely is. I, it's very interesting watching, um, especially Rory ride his because he's really sort of he's pushing for he's got that pros mentality where he's he's pushing for things to be harder and tougher and the climbing stages that the guys are working out are they're really really interesting and. A lot of the time, places like Finale, they've actually worked out that so many people are coming there with e-bikes that they're converting the oldest downhill tracks that they don't have the time or the budget to keep fresh because no one's riding them. They're converting them into e-bike climbs and specific trails. And I think that's one of the things that people sort of don't really acknowledge is that it's a way of keeping more trails open and building more trails as well so anything mm. that does that's got to be good as far as i'm concerned yeah it's crazy you know i was chatting to a guy that works for a a very very well-known brand and he was telling me that they sell four e-bikes for every one enduro bike now oh it's huge yeah it's the some of the some of the numbers that you're hearing sort of in the pits and on different uh in different conversations are are massive and that's what i think like I think the, the the brands obviously realize it and they realize that having a feasible race series to to do what race series do best and really like, you know, promote sport um, is essential as well. So, yeah, no, I think I think it'll be really interesting. I think up until now, they've, they've maybe been, it's been a bit of a race with, power units and it's been a bit of a race of battery life and how you know how felt you can make them and stuff i think you're now going to start to see them 
become quite specific things in their own right and you know sort of really become become race machines i guess as opposed yeah. to e-bikes that people are racing but you know it's uh it's, it's, I think it's brilliant. I think it's. I think it's only. It's. I mean, it's one of the big things that we've seen from this lockdown is the the amount of e-bikes being sold, bikes in general, but the amount of e-bikes being sold is huge, and that can. It has to be a positive. Yeah, definitely. It's crazy. Like I had a guy on the show not so long ago. He was saying that his mate bought an e-bike and sold it. I don't know a number of months later for more than he actually bought it for because. Yeah, <laughs> I could there. believe it. I could definitely believe it. Um, it's still like it's one of those things. It's, I've been out, I've been a lot out a lot on my I've a, a Santa Cruz tall boy at the minute, and I love that bike. And I've been out riding it a lot the last week and a half or so of my time off. And it's not, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive at all. I think it's um, it's just it's something different. And I think especially if you're if you're pushed for time, what you can what you can do in an hour on an e-bike is there's no argument with it really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know it's interesting what you say about the development of the bike because I never really thought about it before. I know you have hardtail e-bikes and you have full suspension e-bikes, but the way you're chatting is interesting because on the normal on the normal mountain bikes you have trail bikes you have all mountain bikes you have enduro bikes you have all these bikes set up for these different disciplines and you're thinking the e-bikes may go the same that would be very interesting i think so yeah i think yeah i think it's a great it's a great application for getting people out on bikes in the first place giving people a bit of a new spin on why they should be buying a mountain bike in the first place but I also think that once you establish that, then there's going to be there's going to be a breed of people who, like every sport, want to go racing or want to compete. And I think that drives. If you look at the the sort of geometry numbers on any of the the modern wave of enduro bikes versus, as I say, what was in Punta Ala all those years, seven years ago now, that's come from there being a high level race series in the public eye and then a lot of national series, domestic series, local series that people want to go and compete at. And I mean, I did, I did enough downhill racing in the, the mid to late nineties to realize I couldn't afford to do it because you, anytime you went, <laughs> you broke at least three or four really expensive things. And I think the bikes are so good now that, um, yeah, that's been really driven through the sort of the competitive side of stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's cool. Like, do you see, as far as the e-bikes, and I don't want to hound on too much more about e-bikes, cause, but do you see the EWS helping the brands kind of develop the e-bikes there? Do you see the brands introducing, introducing e-bikes to the race scene just to help develop that that bike, that side of their, their business? I definitely, it's... Again, it's a, it's a bit cliched, but I'm a big believer that racing better is the breed. And I think, you know, in terms of like, you know, the big the big companies that are involved in e- e-bikes at the minute, they're quite well represented in at EWSE, the, the couple of races we had this year. And yeah, I think, I think definitely the racing component, I mean, 
like stuff stuff breaks when you race. Do you know what I mean? Whenever mm. whenever people are getting competitive on bikes, stuff breaks. And we had a we had an e bike test event back in uh, twenty eighteen in finale after the main EWS race, and all of I'd say ninety percent of the big brands were there represented and. The stuff that broke and failed, and you know, just things like sensors breaking or connect wiring connections breaking, or that I had never done before, and it's all because people are racing and they're pushing that bit harder. And I think just in terms of, I mean, Yeti don't have an e-bike in their lineup, but Richie Rood's famous for being one of the best test riders in the world, and that you could you can tell him any one component on a bicycle. And he'll come down a trail and break it for you. <laughs> and I just think whenever you have professionals like that, that but then who can also give you structured feedback as exactly, to how to yeah. make it better. That's that's where big value in racing, I think, lives um, away from the stuff that we all talk about, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I definitely think so. I think it's going to help it. Yeah, that's cool, man. That's cool. It's great to see that happening. You know, it's nice to see that for sure. Um, yeah. Let's jump back a little bit. Let's chat a little bit about your background because you're a county down man, right? You're originally from Comber. I am indeed. Yeah, I am from just outside Comber, a wee village called Lisbon. Um, and I grew up there. Um, grew up there just sort of, um, I don't know, just messing around on bikes and first BMXs and then mountain bikes and my friends do down the road, road bikes as well and that was kind of it, really. That was a sort of then did a did a little bit of racing, but as I say, just broke everything and sort of realised I couldn't afford it. Then um, <laughs> decided to go to uni over in Scotland. A friend, of my, a couple of friends of mine had been had gone to uni in Scotland and I decided that was for me. And uh, so I had a an amazing. It was second hand, but it was amazing. A two thousand and one intense M one, and I had a Schwinn. Wow. I had a Schwinn Straight 6 that I bought off eBay. Uh, I sold a pair of them to fund uh, to fund drinking, really. And, oh, dear. Um, yeah, and that sort of one thing led to another. And I got over <laughs> for three years or so. And then, um, yeah, and then I got, a, I got myself a degree in journalism. And I made a mind sort of, I was talking about Scotland a bit, trying to work out what I was going to do with myself. And a mate of mine sent me a, a job description for a job at MBUK magazine down in Bath. And I went for it and uh, got the job and sort of haven't looked back since, really. Mm. And when you went to uni to study journalism, were you thinking of getting into the mountain bike side of things? Was that where your true interests lay because of your mountain biking career or your mountain biking background kind of thing? I always thought I was, I don't know, I always sort of felt like I needed to I wanted to do newspapers, really. Newspapers what I wanted to do. But um, we had, our degree course was really heavily based around print, which was relatively... It was, it was, I think it was very, very useful in grounding for the professional work. But at the same time, it, it was just... It was two or three years too late, really, online. was just sort of kicking off and... Um, that really wasn't the model that existed anymore. And certainly anybody I knew who went to work for newspapers pretty much, you know, slowly but steadily. I don't have any friends now who, from that course, are still working in newspapers. Um, but 
I don't know. I sort of, I always kind of thought I'd go that way and didn't really have, I've always, always been into to bicycles and motorsport are my two big sort of things. So I kind of thought that if I could end up doing something like that, but I had no big, no big sort of direction for that where I was going to end up. It was more a case of there's a, there's a job going at a magazine that, and I read in the UK since I was a kid. So yeah. it was like, I may as well go if nothing else, just to experience it, you know? And, um, yeah, no, I, I don't, that was never the big plan, but it's sort of, I've been sort of getting away with it ever since. I think. <laughs> that must've been kind of surreal. You know, when you got the job for MBUK and you've been reading that for so long, that must've been quite an experience. It was, yeah, it was brilliant. I really enjoyed my time there. And, um, we had a big we had a lock up down the basement which was sort of our bike room sort of workshop and there was you know a couple of massive shelving units that had the full archive of all all the issues in the i think it, it had been going i think it was maybe the 25th year that just celebrated whenever i left wow. uh, so i was wow. there for the 20th and like you just like you could go down there and just lose yourself for hours and just you know the, the the copies that you remember sort of flicking through when you were younger and seeing on shelves and being at mates houses and so it was um yeah no it was a great it was a great place to work and i think i, I was lucky to work there and i think it's, it's still a really good magazine print mm. print been through quite a challenge over the last 10 years but i think it's uh it's really weathered it well yeah yeah for sure so after that you were with them for a number of years and then after that is that when the red bull media house thing all happened yeah um i was uh i was basically my my wife's scottish and i was i was fancying a move back up north again and um i'd sort of kind of half made my mind up to go freelance i was seeing I kind of thought if I could get a couple of things a month off MBUK, I was spending more and more time traveling to different places because they wanted me to go and write stuff for them while still being on staff. And I kind of thought that if I could get a couple of pieces, given that Bath is really expensive to live in, still is obviously, um, that I'd probably be able to sort of get by on that. And um, I was at, I think it was actually Eurobike, the big European trade show. And, got talking to a guy in a bar one night who was then working for factory media who used to have dirt um i mentioned that i was thinking about doing this and sort of never thought too much more of it and then a few months later he emailed me to say if i'd still be interested could i contact him on my personal email address so i did and it turned out he just got um he'd just been made editor of red bull bike uh, website and he offered me uh, a really good job doing, it was like two to three shifts a week, which gave me two days then to sort of plug with magazine stuff. And um, yeah, so I, I ended up, I did that, did that for a, maybe a year before they then started talking to me about wanting to get race reports actually from, um, from bike races. So I started traveling with them then and, I think 2013, 2014. Yeah, yeah. And that's when you get thrown in front of a camera, was it? With a microphone in your hand? Yeah, yeah. That sort of came about um, rather sort of 
discouragingly, I think the guy who was doing it before me had just basically had a breakdown with it and gone, I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> so I was, I was sort of labelled as, um, they find me out as someone who, even if it was a tentative grasp on the English language, was a native English speaker and had this sort of geeky knowledge of mountain bike racing. And um, I did, the first one I did was Cairns. Um, and it was the cross country eliminator, so I did I did that and it it didn't it didn't bomb I did all right, and then the next so they said okay you do downhill next day and I was like oh right okay and that was the race that um, Aaron Brayton and I thanked him for this recently um, broke his leg and do you remember right, the, spectator, yeah. the spectator then got on his bike and yes um, yes of course yeah really hurt himself but that meant uh it meant like a 45 minute hold on the live broadcast so oh, i had to no. sort of do a lot of filling and grabbing people and it was a bit of a baptism of fire and i saw a photographer friend of mine at the end of it and i said i'm never doing it again it's just it's the most stressful it's the most stressful work situation i've ever been in and i then continued to do it for five years so yeah <laughs> I, yeah I, I, can't complain about it too much but it's yeah it's a very it's a very stressful sort of thing to do and anybody's ever felt the stress of a live microphone before it's it's really challenging yeah it's funny um when you when you put a microphone in front of somebody things can change just dramatically yeah definitely definitely and you don't my big fear initially was always my accent and that whenever I got whenever I got stressed, my accent came came on stronger than it maybe was normally. And um when you're talking to somebody English is maybe their third language maybe for some of the cross country riders, you know what I mean? That's a very yeah. difficult. But then but then someone doesn't hear you once and they ask you to repeat the question, you repeat the question, you realise it's fine. It's actually okay. It's um I sort of learned over time to tell myself that nerves were actually quite good because it just meant that you were you were alert to the stuff around you and you were alert to potential pitfalls and um yeah it, and but then there's there's different riders as well that you'd have different it was i found it very difficult to interview people i knew quite well right, people okay. like Ruri, Ruri i had interviewed a couple of times brendan fairclough i've got i know quite well interviewing him i always find difficult because it's very hard to not just talk to them like, you know, you're sort of, you're having a beer and a chat at the end of the day mm-hmm. and keep that professional sort of veneer on stuff. Um, writers like Greg Menard, famously tricky because he, he enjoys slipping people up in interviews. He enjoys that, <laughs> like a bit of gamesmanship and a bit of sort of, just stuff like that and just sort of being aware of it and, also having the confidence to say that you know you're not going to get someone or it's not okay for me to go and speak to them if they're preparing for a race run or if they're doing x y and z they don't need me there yeah. as well yeah well that's what i was going to ask you because you were relatively thrown in at the deep end there um but i was going to ask you if you had a relationship beforehand with any of the the competitors and if that made it easier or more difficult or if you kind of knew there was guys that you just couldn't talk to, that they just didn't want to speak on a microphone. You know, was there anything like that? Like, how did that all work? It's just, it's, 
I I was I was fortunate enough. I grew up in um I grew up in a pub, and uh, my dad was. <laughs> I sort of I grew up watching him. You know, whenever you were doing that trade, and whenever pubs were very 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 busy, you sort of get a grip for each individual character, and you know you've you've got a couple of wee things that you know you maybe like. I don't know, they've bought a new car or something that you've seen on social media or something. You've got a little, a little inroad of a conversation that you can just sort of build a relationship around. And um, I mean, we were talking about this the other day in the airport. Um, I was told that uh, Troy Brosnan was, you know, he, you know, he could be a really tricky guy to, to interview and you have to really like pick your moment with him and and we were we were coming. It was in Lea Gang. It was one of the first ones I did. And we were the cameraman and I and myself were heading towards the. He was on Specialized then, heading towards the airport, and he was just leaving with a helmet and goggles on and stuff. I just thought I just throw myself in front of him and see see what happens. So Troy, you know, can can I get a couple of words for you too? And he said, and he he just stopped and he said, yeah, of course. Took the helmet off, goggles off, and we had like a couple of questions, and he went on and. From then on, I always had a really good relationship with him, and mm. I never, saw, I never sort of saw that. You know, people are very quick to pick up on if they approach somebody once at the wrong time and they say, "I can't do it now." That very quickly over a period of days becomes, you know, Chinese whispers, and that he's impossible. You can't deal with him. And I think it's no, it's having to know. The trick is knowing when they're doing their job, and not imposing on that or not interrupting that. Like it's a lot of it's common sense. You know what I mean? If a guy's come down from a run and he's he's not happy and he's waving the bike at the mechanic, you, he's not going to want to have a chat to you about qualifying. Then you've got to pick your moments and sort of, you know, just use a bit of common sense and a bit of um, I don't know, there's a bit of craft to it. It's something I always really enjoyed, and I was always, I was always really glad that mountain biking is largely full of very approachable very yeah. nice well-rounded people you know it's not you hear nightmare horror stories of people who work in other sports and athletes being very difficult but i think mountain biking from its nature of being you know racing out the back of a van you know people people grow up racing out the back of a van and you know little races here and there and wherever they can get to and i think there's a relatively good sort of you know yeah appreciation for what you're trying to do as well at the end of the day all you're really trying to do is put them on a broadcast mm. which isn't actually that bad thing when you put it like that but <laughs> yeah no it's no it's good fun yeah cool man cool and do you think it's gotten easier approaching these guys now that they know who you are i can imagine you know you being there a lot of them maybe didn't know who you were. Like, how did you initially introduce yourself to them? Or was that a difficult thing? That, to me, would always feel like one of the most difficult things to do. I think you've just you've just got to do it. You've just got to... I think once you've had... It's, it's no different than any other sort of relationship you'd have with someone in an office. Or once you've spoken to somebody a couple of times, you sort of develop that relationship. And, you, and then you sort of, ah, oh, remember... I need to chat to you later on. What sort of time would suit you? Okay, right, grand. And you sort of build, you build it up, and you build it up, and you you learn as well. Different, different riders. I mean, people like like Nino Shirt or the cross country rider. Like, it's always he'd always prefer it if you asked his manager or he asked the mechanic. Was always a brilliant one in that team as well. You know, 
if I needed to get hold of him, and then the mechanic would say, "Oh, you know, the guys are looking to have a quick chat with you." Okay, cool. And he sort of knew you were coming, and that was that was fine. Other people, you'd be more confident, like stopping as they were wheeling through the pits, and it's just building up. Sort of, I think you've been you've got to ask because at the end of the day, all I can say is no. Mm. And whenever they're not featured in a, a highlights video or a, a live broadcast, you know, in an interview, and their team manager complains about it. You know, your boss can say with confidence that, well, we asked them and they said no, which, to be honest, I, it, it never really happened. You know, everyone was always really good, but me and always give me time, which, you know, and still at Enduro, people, you know, will stop and have a yarn with you in a chat. And it's, it's I mean, as I say, it's, I think it's a lot easier than it is in other sports. Yeah, yeah, definitely cool. And, you know, I suppose throughout the day you have to keep a good eye on what's happening you enter you interview the guys when they come down at the end of the run but suppose you need to know what's kind of happened to them throughout that run because you're kind of you're kind of questioning these guys just on the spot you don't have time to write out questions or a script or anything you know like how does no, that work that's what that's what's i mean that's it's one of the sort of the big stresses and challenges of what i do at the minute is Firstly, it's getting into those stage finishes, which could be in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then secondly, I sort of, I had in my head that I was I was only interviewing three or four people at the bottom of each one. And then Nico pointed out to me that I was averaging on between 38 and 40 at the end of each stage. Really? Wow. Yeah. And that's, it's kind of, you're going off reaction. Also, we've got, two or three different WhatsApp groups from you know from media that are on stage who'll you know just drop in something like Pedro Big Crash and then you know to look for Pedro Burns and he's there covered in dirt or whatever and you can sort of get that reaction quote from him and so you do have a bit of heads up where it comes mm. where you sort of narrow it down is towards the end of the day whenever you know you know you know from a script writing point of view who you're going to be talking about in the highlights of if Richie Rude's half a second ahead of Sam Hill you need to get Sam and Richie at the end of that next stage. Do you know what I mean? You need to get those yeah. guys, the guys around them. You need to get Isabel. You need to get Morgan if they're racing together. Then it becomes a bit more apparent, but certainly if it's a two-day race, like the first the first day is just get as many people as possible and hope that... Because you've also, you've also then got to prepare for things like if somebody has an unbelievable riding shot of Mark Scott, that will benefit from a quick word with him even if it's just a couple of lines as well. So you just sort of get as many as you can. Yeah. So so what you were saying really earlier, you've got quite a small team there, but you all know what you are doing and you are all good at what you do. Yeah. So suppose when you're up the mountain, you're spread out, your cameraman's trying to climb up these incredibly steep slopes with a camera. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like so it's it all gels. It does. And the cameraman, a lot of them, um, for both our guys and the general media, they all ride. They're all really good riders, so they'll often turn up early, get a shuttle up, and then ride into position. So that's what we do a media recce. So all the all the media know what the stage looks like. They all get an idea for where their shots are going to be, and then they ride to each of those spots in the build up to it. So there's a lot goes into it. You know, there's a lot of it's definitely which is always going to be by the very nature of the race. And it's very logistic logistics driven and. Um, that's it's the part that I struggle with the most, to be honest. Because my head doesn't really work that way. But working out if you have, you know, if you have two cameramen that need to cover five stages, one of the stages is, is a million miles away from the other ones. You know, it's working out 
mm. who needs to be going where and when. Yeah, that's not easy. Like, it's definitely not easy. No, it's, it's really not easy, and it's, it's very difficult. And as I say, whenever you go to you know really challenging locations, it's it's easier whenever we go to places like um, actually Wicklow is a good example. It's pretty straightforward because you're on one hill and you mm-hmm. can just cameramen can move uh, horizontally from stage to stage. That makes things a lot easier. But whenever you're, I mean, somewhere like Finale where you're covering big distances, you know, it's, it becomes a lot more challenging. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I can understand that. Um, now that you're working for the EWS, has your job role changed anything? What What do you do in the off season? What what kind of happens there? Do you enjoy it more? What's what's your thinking there? Yeah, it's it's quite nice because um, off season for me never really sort of never really existed that well. And that I'd sort of I'd finish the year, do a lot of different writing up different like season review things, and then get maybe a month or so downtime. But the very nature of of being freelance is that if you don't work for a month. Two months later, you're absolutely skinned. So, mm, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. I always sort of cracked on and was always busy. It's um, at the minute, at the minute, it's nice because I'm sort of I'm doing stuff that's a bit different from what I've done before with EWS. I'm doing, I'm involved in our different partnerships, sort of developing, you know, how we how we work with other brands, and luckily they're all really interesting, really good to work with brands as well, and um, just developing what we do with them and sort of working around the communications around different uh, race series, different uh, tiers and starting. I mean, if everything goes according to plan, you know, we're going to be in South America racing in March. So mm. that doesn't really, that comes around quite quickly. You know, you, you haven't got a whole lot of time there. So um, yeah, starting prep work and it's all, yeah, no, it's, it's it's busy enough, but it's really nice to have um it's really nice to have one one race series and one job in your head as opposed to spinning plates in three or four different worlds. You know, it's quite nice to have that sort of one focus. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that'd be quite difficult, you know, you're concentrating on one thing for half a day and then you're looking at your watch saying, Right, at two o'clock I've got to go and do this, which is completely different. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that would be that would be difficult. And I know what you're saying. You know Glenn O'Brien? I do know Glenn well, yeah. <laughs> well, when I was chatting to him about the, the Vitus first tracks and Juro, he does. Yeah. You know, um, I've had him on the show a couple of times and he actually interviewed me for a Christmas special and all, but that's another <laughs> story. Uh, but um, he was saying, you know, when he finishes, when that Enduro series finishes, he basically starts again for the following year. So there never yeah. is really downtime. And it must just be a hundred times that for you guys. There's not a lot because, I mean, when you think about it then, you know, the year, what we think is the, off as the summer, the European series finishes. And then, you know, Australia and New Zealand Southern Hemisphere kicks off. Um, there's lots of racing there from quite early in the year. Um, we have lots of planning and logistics to work through in terms of getting ourselves out to race in the next year, what we're going to do content-wise, what we're going to cover. Uh, the GMBN stuff keeps us busy as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's always, like, little sort of newsy updates to do for those guys. And 
you know, hopefully planning some ride and stuff. And yeah, no, it's 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 busy, but it's you know, it's a it is a full it's a full time job. It's you it's got to be. You know, you've got to always be. That's what hopefully keeps it fresh and keeps it interesting is the fact that yeah. there's a group of people working behind the scenes to keep it keep the ball rolling. You know. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely good. And it's great to see it growing. Um, like, I'm sure for yourself, you have seen this enduro thing growing so much. Like, how healthy do you think the industry is at the minute? Because you're right there in that race scene of, the, of it all. Like, do you think the industry is really, really healthy and buoyant? I, it's certainly the impression I get, yeah. I mean, I think COVID has been, I mean, I, I, mentioned my own background and sort of license trade and stuff like that and if you look at that industry it's really on its knees you know and it's only getting tougher looking whereas yeah you know bike companies i mean i know i know i have friends actually locally who are trying to buy some bikes at the minute and they're being told february minimum you know yeah. like the lead time on stuff is huge and the actual even some individual products that teams are looking for for racing they can't get standalone because all the stock's been bought up to put them on bikes. Do you know what I mean? I think the bike industry's in in pretty good health. I can't I can't speak for numbers. I can't speak for I'm sort of speaking quite anecdotally, but um, I think it's I certainly think the the turnover seems to be there as well as I've ever known it. Um, I think it's maybe a different it's maybe a different feeling on you know, in sort of smaller bike shops and but certainly a couple I've been into recently just can't get bikes, which, yeah, I mean, it, it's a good thing, but it's also a knife edge thing and that you've got to sell them where people, you know, people that want to swap money for them. So I think there's definitely challenges inherent in it, but I also think it's, it seems to be good. I think the e-bike thing certainly seems to be very positive because so many people are seem to be getting into it and seem to be getting them. Um, I know, an e-bike's basically a Ken's teeth at the minute. So, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I I think it's I think it seems to be heading the right way. Yeah, cool, man. It's great to see. It really is. It's, it's great to see. And how about the EWS? Um, what have you guys planned for the future? I know it's getting bigger and better. Is there anything you can fill us in on? Anything new for next season? Well, more. We're just just more of everything. Yeah, we're hoping to get sort of stabilize and get back to a bit of normality we've got a couple of new ideas in terms of um individual races that we're working on we've got some more ideas around e-bike we've got um yeah we've got loads of stuff um none of which i can really talk about at the minute but um Mm. it's definitely a case of i mean one of my favorite things about working for the ews is that you're never sort of stationary. We're always, I mean, you know, the company is just, it's really pragmatic. We always move forward. We're always on to the next thing. And I think that's one of those things that most companies will try and tell you that they always think outside the box and X, Y, and Z. But I think EWS, we're really, really good at just chipping away at stuff and keeping new ideas and sort of fresh sort of approaches to things coming in. And in terms of working with, uh, with the brands that we're partnered with as well, there's more sort of good stuff in the pipeline. And I, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's difficult because it's been a really tough 2020, but I think having 
those races go well for us um, that we had and getting this, this sort of positive feedback and the sort of impetus that we've received through being partnered with GMBN, I think that it's really sort of re-energized us. This, this two-week off period has really re-energized me. I know that for free as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's nice to get a break. You need it. You need to get your head away from the from everything for a while. Oh, it, you do, you do, yeah. And that was, it was such a big, it was such a big trip that certainly one of the most sort of, I don't know, draining sort of mm. trips I've been on. Um just from we just really knew that we needed to get those races done and get them done well um so it was nice to just take a bit of time as well yeah yeah for sure no it's it's you know and i think this is the thing a lot of people see the ews show and everything else um and you know your job looks like the perfect job you know everybody wants to be doing that kind of thing but it's there's a lot more goes into it there's a lot more in the background you know there's late nights and all i'm sure doing stuff on it and everything else and planning and everything so you know it would be draining because when you're out there you're you're there you're working 24 hours a day right yeah you they are long days yeah you're sort of you're you're sort of seven till seven till it's done which generally tends to be Around about half eleven midnight, um, yeah. if not later. Um, but it's but it is that way because everybody involved in it cares about it and knows mm. that their names on it and wants to make it as good as they can. And that's I think that's key. And I think once you have that in a team, then there's nobody going out there with under the illusion that this is going to be nine to five. You know what I mean? I'm going to be in the pub by six, sort of thing. It's like mm-hmm. it's a total it's a total assault on, on everything yeah. you have but but as I say like we, we hold ourselves to quite high standards and we also it's a small enough team that if somebody doesn't like something or somebody disagrees with how something's been edited that the communication's instant it's not you know it doesn't have to go from one boss to another boss to an editor yeah that's so nice it's really good it gives us that flexibility and a sort of a, a response time that's really really nice as well it's really really good we can change things quite quickly and get on to things quite quickly so yeah um no it's it is yeah it's fuck, i love it it's a it's i'm not going to pretend it's a really difficult hard way like in terms of what other people are currently facing at the minute to make a living but i think it's anything is only as good as you want to put into it how much you want to put into it and i think you definitely see that with the stuff that we produce i mean there's a, a small team of people putting heart soul oxygen blood into it so mm. it's, it is the way it is for that reason yeah cool now rick before i let you go there bro um i know you're planning for a, a small party tomorrow <laughs> yeah five-year-old's birthday party doesn't get much more stressful than that let me tell you trampolines and swings and slides and yeah yeah. Uh, I just wanted to quickly ask you: Do you see any of the Irish crew coming up through the enduro ranks? Do you think anybody we can look forward to seeing in the near future? Just off the back of Oshin and all doing so well at the downhill there last week. I think you definitely will. Yeah, there's um, there's definitely. I mean, you've got Keelan Keelan out there already. Obviously, Dan's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's one of those things. I think enduro. I think Ireland, Ireland as an island, really suits enduro bikes. Do you know what I mean? There's no getting yeah. away from it. There aren't many mountains, and 
there's certainly no ski lifts knocking about and I think that will become sort of evident in time. I think Greg Greg doing what he does and the sort of profile that he's gained from Red Bull will also help no end. Um I think it's a it's a great time for for Ireland in general when it comes to cycling, if you look at the success on the road as well recently and I'd say yeah, I'd say they're they're sort of you'll maybe see it in another couple of years. I don't think there's anybody yeah. at the minute who's sort of I'd say Keelan could could kick on and sort of really progress. But I think you're still sort of waiting to see that. It takes time, do you know what I mean? It takes a mm-hmm. long time for I mean you look at as you look in downhill, the likes of Ocean and stuff, you know, that's not been a an overnight sort of thing, you know, it's it's taken a long time. Um it's a slow burn. But I'd say I mean, especially with with people like Glenn putting the series and the races on that they are, you know, that will only grow. And mm-hmm. um, the EWS perhaps more so than the likes of downhill or cross country. It really suits that, you know, there's the free there's a, a free tiered system of races that people can enter and different ways to get into a you know a full sized EWS that people can undertake and I think that will help with that. I think it'll take another couple of years yet before we see the latest generation in there in the mix. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Like the young guys coming up now are just getting so good, it's unbelievable. Yeah. You know, I mean, and they have... like Jacob, Jacob Dixon's a prime example. You know, yeah. he was. I got beat at Manduro by him whenever I think he was thirteen and I was twenty-five, maybe. <laughs> if he was thirteen, like I, I don't even know if he was in his teens by then. But <laughs> you know, it it takes it takes guys a long time to come through, and it yes. always will. You know, um, I'd say. But I'd say in terms of any of the mountain bike disciplines, I think Ireland really, I think enduro suits it. And I think the biggest strength of enduro is that those are the, like, those are the bikes that people buy. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like downhill where you've got to spend £4,000 on a race bike to go and race it. You know, yeah, it is, yeah. It's the bike that you and your mates ride every other weekend or something. And then, you know, all of a sudden somebody does a race and you've already got the equipment it takes to go and do it. All you need to do is stick a banana in your back pocket and fill up your water bottle and sign on. And I think that will, I definitely think it's just, I think it's a very, you know, you look like you look at football, all you need is a ball. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that enduro is a very good discipline in terms of having a go at racing. And I think especially in Ireland where there's so many good trails, but there isn't perhaps a depth when it comes to downhill tracks. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, for you, sure. You probably, you probably will see that grow. Yeah, no, I think the enduro things where it lies for the Irish, the Irish guys coming up, and especially yeah, with a lot that, of parents. Nile, Nile, and all the, Nile and all those guys. I mean, those series are, you know, they're superb and they're such breeding grounds for young talent as well. And I think it'll only get bigger. Yeah, I do too, and like. Uh, I think the network of trails and stuff we have here, Rex, just unbelievable for the size of island we have. You know, it's, yeah. it's just crazy. And, you know, the the councils and everything else with the trail centres, they're behind it. You know, they're putting money yeah. into it. They're investing into it. They realise, even from a kind of tourism side of things, how it can benefit 
you know, local communities and everything else. It's amazing. If people can afford to spend the money that they can spend on a mountain bike, chances are, if they're going away for the weekend, they'll leave a pound or two behind them as well. You know, it's it's just, it's, it's common sense. And it's a, I think it's a great, I mean, if you're talking about, you know, public health issues like sort of childhood obesity and issues around diet and stuff, I think mountain biking is, it's an instantly fun sport that people can, you know, get involved in quite, quite easily compared mm-hmm. to a lot of other stuff. And yeah, it's only, it's only a good thing, I think. And you're definitely seeing, you're definitely seeing it growing at that level, which is, which I think is, it's only ever going to sort of head upwards, you know, to the top tiers. Yeah, I think so. And what I like about a lot of the trail centers, and some people may look at this completely the other way, but a lot of them are geared towards families and towards people, you know, like green runs and everything, and people getting involved in it for the first time. Now, a lot of people may not like that, but that's supporting the whole industry and the sport from an early age. You need that kind of thing in trail centers. You do, of course you do. And if you, I mean, I'm I'm lucky to live, lucky enough to live in a place called Dunkeld in uh, in Perthshire and it's um, you're surrounded by really really good natural uh, hand cut trails but they're all you know they're all pretty technical and they're all pretty steep and it is I know, it is something that I know stops people that we're friendly with for our kids and stuff from they've got mountain bikes and stuff but they wouldn't dream of you know heading up and having a go at stuff because it is quite full on Whereas, you know, I've I've taken people around who don't who don't really ride, taken them around Glen Tress before and it's it's like the first time you see Fight Club, you can't believe how good it is, do you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's like it's it's the perfect climb because it never feels like a climb, it just feels like you've pedaled for twenty odd minutes and you're there and I think definitely I've never understood people who sort of complain about the depth of stuff that's at trail centers because you can just you could just go ride something else like you don't have to ride there and it's um yeah it's definitely yeah i i really don't i don't understand the argument yeah 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 it's a crazy one but um you know that's the that's the lovely thing about here as well in ireland all the trail centers are different so if you want something different steeper more technical you can just go elsewhere you know, exactly yeah so it's, exactly. it's perfect it's perfect well rick listen thanks so much for coming on man i really really enjoyed our chat and uh it's been Thank an, you hour, an, an hour odd now man that just flew in i know that was great fun let's do it again sometime sometime yeah for sure for sure yeah we'll, we'll keep a keep a tap on you and see what's happening in the ews world amazing definitely definitely uh, but thanks, bro. Listen, good luck with the party tomorrow and uh, good luck with the rest of the, the season. And we'll certainly see you on on the cameras next next season. Hopefully everything goes to plan and we don't have more lockdowns and stuff. Yeah, here's hoping anyway. Thank you very much for today. Cheers, bud. Appreciate it. Thank you, Gar. That's a wrap for episode 164. And I hope you enjoyed that, folks. I hope you learned a little bit more about the EWS and everything it takes to bring us that show, the highlight shows, and everything else that's available on the website to do with the EWS and the athletes and everything else and the things that go into making that possible for us to watch and read free of charge is absolutely pretty amazing. So it was great to get Rick on to chat about it, and I hope you enjoyed it. 
Now, Rick, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really did enjoy our chat. It was great to get you on the show and find out a little bit more about how you got involved in the EWS and everything that goes on there and your future plans for 2021. So I hope everything goes to plan and I hope things go well and we can run the full series this year. So good luck with that, pal. I hope everything goes well for you. Now, if you want to know a little bit more about Rick and about the EWS, just simply go to the show notes on the website mtb-tribe.com search for episode 164 and you'll get quick and easy links to the EWS socials to Rick's socials and a few videos and stuff there for you to view now if you're enjoying the podcast and you want to show your support the best way is by subscribing rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts every one of your ratings helps boost us on Apple's algorithms and helps spread the good word about the show to more people Now, if you're not on Apple, you can also find and subscribe via Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean or whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. We also have a website, mtb-tribe.com, where you can find the complete bike catalogue, listen and download every show free from there. You can also subscribe there and get one email per week with a quick and easy link to listen to the show. If you want to get in contact with the podcast, you can do it via social media. We are at MTB Tribe on Instagram and Facebook. Or if you're old school and want to email me, you'll find me at info at mtb-tribe.com. I do read all emails and I will get back to you. Thanks again, folks, for tuning into the podcast. I do appreciate it. I will speak to you next week for another episode of the show. But until then, get the bikes out, hit the trails and stay MTB stoked.